0: Good morning, I want to go ahead and open up to uh, Exodus chapter 12, that's where we'll be. I'm really uh, grateful to Kendall for his, uh, his song selection today as they all feed right into what we're going to be talking about over the, over the next few minutes from, from Exodus chapter 12. Well as you know, we are in the fourth of our series in the, the book of Exodus. It's titled God's People and God's Plan. And we've seen all kinds of, uh, of different things that have, that have happened. When, when I was 17 years old, I hit a rebellious streak. Yes, yeah, believe it or not. Yes, believe it or not, I did. I, hit a, I, had a, I had a rebellious streak. I know I'm perfect now, but uh, at one time, you know, at one time I, I had a rebellious streak. It didn't last very long. In fact, it didn't even last uh, a whole year, but it lasted the better part of the year, somewhere between uh, eight to ten months, something like that. That was sort of the time frame, and it was during that time that basically I did pretty much the opposite of whatever it was that my parents asked me to do can you relate to that yeah Uh, probably some of you can relate because that describes you and that describes maybe yours you know some of you probably feel both of those things Uh, some of you you might feel it because that kind of describes where you are right now but look back and I think about that, that period in my life, there's three words that come to mind that sort of describe that period or, or the way that I was. And the three words are defiant, devious, and deceitful. I would say that those three words absolutely capture the way that I lived and the way that I was during that, that time period. I broke the fifth commandment so many times that I can't even count. The fifth commandment, as all of you know, is... Yeah, yeah, that's it. Honor your father and mother. You know, and I broke that one so many... The reason why you don't know it yet is because we're not there in the book of Exodus yet. I get it. So you're good. You're good. That was a, that was a, that was a, that was a cheat. I cheated on that. That was, that was a trick question, but you'll all know it in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that was it, I broke that one over and over and over again, you know, and I made choices that had uh, repercussions. Now then, eventually, like the prodigal son, you know, I kept my senses, I kind of came back home, so to speak. But there were some consequences, primarily that were felt in the realms of my, my close relationship. I all but missed my grandfather's last Thanksgiving before he died. Uh, The relationship that I had with my parents was was restored, but it was changed. And then it also cost me a relationship with my best friend. That is just some of the enormous price that I paid for a, a season of rebellion. Now... Some of you can easily relate to those things. If we were to sit down and have this sort of open discussion, I imagine that that others might be able to even add to that list. And if that is you, then, then you, like me, you know the cost. You know that there are repercussions for choices that we make. Some of you, like me, you know the high price of rebellion. And yet... I imagine that some may not yet know that price because you're in the middle of it, because you're choosing that that lifestyle right now and you don't yet know it. But here's the thing. Rebellion always comes with a price, does it not? Rebellion always comes with a price and payment is always exacted from places that you never expected. Can I get an amen from anybody who's experienced that? That's just the way it is, okay? And so the word to anybody that might be sitting in rebellion right now, maybe you're not even listening to what I'm saying right now, okay? And if you aren't, listen. Pay attention to what I'm saying because rebellion always has a price, okay? Rebellion always has a price, and it is always a hefty fine, and it always comes from a place that you never thought it was going to come from. I never thought that I would lose my best friend because... Of a season of rebellion that I entered into you know you just don't you don't have the ability to see ahead you don't have that foreknowledge but yet that's what happened last week as we looked at the story of the Exodus we saw the continual rebellion of Pharaoh as time and time again he hardened his heart to the will of God plague after plague after plague was brought down upon and yet he still refused to to fully repent. Finally, he threatens Moses. Moses appears for him one last time, and Pharaoh says, if you show your face again, you will die. You will die. Of course, Moses agrees. He says, okay, if that's the way you want it, that's the way it's going to be. And and he leaves the presence of, of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, for for maybe a little bit of time, maybe he has a, a false sense of security that this, this duel is finally over, yet in the aftermath what you have left in the dust is the humiliating defeat of the gods of Egypt, save for one. And that's God's name is Pharaoh himself, because he is considered a son of, of one of the gods. And so that's where we left it last week. Pharaoh kicking Aaron and Moses out of his presence, threatening them that if you show up again, you will be dead. This will be the last thing that you, that you ever, ever do. Well, you move into to chapter 11. And it's in chapter 11. There's a, there's a little bit of a break because God is going to, to give out some things. But it's in chapter 11 that God clues Moses in to, to his final plan for release and he clues him in to the final plague. It'll be on the screen in front of you. Exodus 11 4 through 6. Moses said, Says the Lord, about midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the female slave behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a loud cry throughout the whole land of Egypt, such as has never been or ever will be again. And so that's the tenth plague that God is going to bring on to Pharaoh, that he's going to bring on to the people and to the, to the land of Egypt. And so as, as chapter 12 opens, Moses is being instructed by God about some things that are going to take place before the plague happens and things that are going to continue to take place. God tells him that the, the month that this is going to happen, that this is going to become the first month of the new year. And this seems sig- uh, significant. Because what God is saying is when this stuff happens, when this takes place, this is going to be a new start. You're going to have a new beginning. There's going to be new creation that comes out of this, this chaos this chaos of uncreation and and death as the Israelites will follow God out of slavery and they will begin a new life that is going to ultimately lead them to the promised land. And it's then that for the first time the instructions about Passover are given. Passover is that, that, that meal that they will celebrate. It's going to be something that they will do then but it's not just going to be a one time and done thing it's going to be something that they continue to celebrate and so Moses tells the people that on this night when God is going to pass through the land this is what you are to do you are to take an unblemished lamb a spotless lamb that sounds familiar does it not you're supposed to take an unblemished lamb a perfect lamb and on the 14th of that month you are to slaughter that lamb you're then to take some of that blood, and you know how the story goes. You're to take some of it, and you're to paint it on the doorposts of the dwelling where you live or happen to be staying. You're to roast that lamb over the fire. You're not supposed to boil it. You're supposed to roast it. And then you're supposed to eat that lamb with bitter herbs. You're not only supposed to eat it, you're supposed to eat it quickly. You're supposed to eat it with your your, your loins girded up and your, your staff in your hand. You're supposed to be eating it in a hurry, ready to run. And not only that, it's not just going to be then. It's going to be a meal that they will continue to celebrate because it's going to be a day of remembrance. A day that, that looks back and says, this is what God did. And because God did this, we celebrate that fact. And so when we we slaughter that lamb, when we take of this, bread we're reminded we're reminded that god saved us we're reminded that god delivered us from the hands of this dictator pharaoh who has sought to destroy so many people it's interesting to note that that passover it's to be done communally each family would would participate in this meal but it's supposed to be done with Urgency, the mark of the blood placed. They're to leave nothing behind for later. Their loins are girded, their sandals are on their feet, the calves are in their hands, they are ready to depart with God. The lamb will be sacrificed, and the people will be covered. But you know, you might be thinking, okay, so wait a minute. What what does it mean? What does it mean? When the Bible says the Lord will pass over. Because, you know, we just talk about Passover. We just read about it. It's a word that we've, we've heard about our in, entire lives. If we've attended church, you know, it's just something that's sort of familiar with us. But you might be wondering, what actually is the Passover? Well, I think the, I think the answer is found in, in verse 23 of chapter 12. It says, for the Lord will pass through to strike down the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over that door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And so literally, what Passover means is to protect. It means to protect, to to, to watch over. There's uh, There's another translation that suggests that it means to stand guard over that the Lord Himself will block entry to the destroyer. Do you see that? God said, I will not let the destroyer come into your home. I will not let the destroyer take the life of your firstborn son. When I pass by your house and I look on the doorpost and I see that blood, I see, I see the mark of the Lamb, and that destroyer will pass over your house will pass over your dwelling, because when he looks at the house, he's going to see that the Lord God is standing there, standing guard, protecting those who are inside. And so that's, that's what that means. And so at midnight, this Passover begins, and everything that God said would happen, happened. Start reading with me in, uh, in verse 29, and we'll read all the way down through verse 32. At midnight, the Lord... "...struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. Pharaoh arose in the night. He and all his officials and all the Egyptians and all there sent out a loud cry in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead." Then he summoned Moses and Aaron in the night, and he said, Rise up. Go away from my people, both you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bring a blessing on me too. And so in the night, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they urged the departure of Israel. There is no waiting to the next moment. Did you notice that it said that Pharaoh summoned Aaron and Moses in the night? And he said, take your people, take your livestock, take everything that you have and get out. Get out of Egypt. Go and do what you said you were going to do. Go and worship the Lord because there is a cry that is going up in all of Egypt throughout the night because all of the first Born Egyptians all of those that did not have the mark of blood all that did not have the Lord standing guard at the door of their houses all of those houses experience a death in some way shape or form as the death of the firstborn dies now I've asked you this before who are the firstborns in the room firstborns or onlyborns if you're a a firstborn child raise your hand You guys wouldn't even be together, or you wouldn't be able to continue to exist, because the firstborn throughout the land were killed, and no one was spared. Okay, it said from all the way to the throne, all the way to the prisoner, the firstborn of the Egyptians died. Now, then, uh, my my professor Philip Camp he deals with this text. And he says this text inevitably raises this question of, you know, what do we do with, it, with a text like this? He says, though the perspective of the original readers, though from the perspective of the original, the original readers, the story is more about deliverance from oppression. And so one does not see the issue raised in the text itself, but this is a hard situation to swallow from our perspective. First, it is worth noting that not all who die are children. Firstborn can be any age. Still, some would certainly have been young, and not all would have been among the powerful. Second, there is the ancient sense of corporate responsibility that makes little sense to us, but it would to them. Keep in mind later that uh, Israel's innocent children will suffer the same fate when Israel stands under God's judgment. He goes on to say that though it sounds like a punt to some, I think perhaps the best we can do with a text like this is to trust in God's wisdom and judgment while admitting that we too find this a hard text to accept. Because it is not an easy text to read, okay? It is not an easy story to to read. I mean, I naturally think about my firstborn son when I read this text. Okay, It's the very reason why I asked who the firstborns in the room are because that's where our mind goes as we, as we read this. And while I don't expect God to exact a judgment like this again, it is at least a, a sobering reminder to live faithfully before God. And what it does is it causes me to pause and to, to give thanks for the blood of the Lamb of God, to be grateful that that blood covers me. And so God has exacted what he said he was going to do. He has sent the death angel throughout the land of Egypt and all of the firstborn who don't have the mark die. Peter states that the last plague is, is not an afterthought. You know, there's been nine plagues and last week we looked at them as they were grouped in 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 different groups of three and he's saying that this last one the death of the firstborn, it's not just sort of a well you've had nine powerful plagues and this one is sort of the icing on the cake he says that this one here this one is the mighty act of God that is going to finally result in the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt which has been the goal of the narrative this entire time I think he proves his point a little further when he says that the tenth Plague is a direct attack on Pharaoh's power. And it is also a direct attack on the fertility God of Cyrus. Yahweh demonstrates by killing the firstborn Egyptians that he, unlike the, look at me, unlike the, the son of God Pharaoh, is the true God. The one who truly has power over death. In life. And the contrasts between chapter 1 and, and chapter 11 are striking. Chapter 1, Pharaoh tries to kill God's children. Yet it's God who will kill Pharaoh's children. At the beginning, you have Israel crying out because of their oppression, but now you have Egypt crying out because of what has been done to them. Peter N says that this tenth plague is a measure of. For measure punishment. He is matching and he is exacting blow for blow what Pharaoh attempted to do to the Israelites. As we've seen throughout this this story over the last several weeks, we've talked about themes of, of creation and we've talked about themes of uncreation or anti creation. Pharaoh is very much for anti creation. It was he that in the beginning looked around and saw creation burgeoning throughout his land. He saw that the Israelites were spreading all over the place and he was fearful. And it was he that said, we have to stop this. We have to stem the tide of these uh, these Israelites because eventually they're going to grow up and they're going to overpower us. If another nation comes in and wants to start war, they're going to join up with them and they're going to turn against us. And so he begins to oppress them. When they continue to multiply, he begins to try to kill them. When that plan fails because the midwives don't want any part of it, he issues that nationwide genocide that says any baby boy must be killed, that you must take that child and that you must throw it into the river. And so now what God is doing is saying, okay, Pharaoh, you want to do this? You want to kill the children of God? I'm going to do exactly what what you set out to do and so it is a blow for blow measure for measure punishment he also points out that this is the only plague with no possibility of reversal you know you you, you think about that okay there's the blood there's the frogs there's the the gnats there's the locusts there's the hail the boils all of that stuff and all of those things they they cease they not I mean, the water eventually, you know, was cleared. Okay, the frogs, you know, they died eventually and they got cleared off. The locusts, the gnats, all of those plagues were eventually reversed. Yet when you come to this 10th plague, this is the only one that cannot be reversed. It's the final blow for which God has been setting Pharaoh up since his first encounter with Moses. Now then, this is interesting because, you know, I've never given a tremendous amount of thought that the other nine legs could be reversed but yet that's exactly what we see God doing but the tenth however is the it's the death blow it's the death blow that is going to end the struggle there's no turning back there is there is no reversal as I think about this this brings brings up to, to my mind the the patience that God has for us god's patience is is bigger than we could possibly imagine is it not how many of you have experienced the patience of god in your life come on let me know how many of you have experienced god's patience in your life i think the very fact that we sit here right now is evidence that we have experienced god's patience it's been said that every breath that you draw Every breath that you draw is another act of God's grace. And that's exactly what it is. And so I'm reminded of that. Bavard Childs says that eventually, and pay attention to this, eventually human patterns of thought and will may in time become irreversible through continual refusal to respond to God's word. That's that that hardening of heart. Remember last week how we saw a couple of times that, first of all, it was Pharaoh that was hardening his heart. But as we continued to read, we saw a few times that it said the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's because Pharaoh continued to refuse to listen to God. He continued to refuse to yield to what God had to say. And so God was basically saying, okay, if you're going to do this, you can do this. If you want to harden your heart, I'm going to let you Go, I'm going to wash my hands of this. And that's what Brevard Childs is saying, is that eventually, eventually we can refuse and refuse and refuse so much that just like that tenth plague, our refusal can become irreversible. And we can find ourselves subject to the, to the, to the wrath of God from refusing to respond to God's Word. That's a sobering reminder to us, is it not? But let's talk about new creation. Terence Fredham, he's an he's Old Testament scholar, he points out that this people, these, these Israelites, these newly liberated people, they have the opportunity to do something new. Because now they are free. They're out of of, of this oppression. They have the opportunity to create practices and and institutions that are going to be in tune with their new status. This speaks to the the new creation out of chaos that we see coming out of this old way of life. The God who makes everything new is now providing a practice for how they are to live in the new creation. As a matter of fact, as we continue through the book and as we get into Exodus chapter 20 and there on through the end, you have God delivering and handing down His instructions. This is what this is going to be like. This is how you'll live. This is how you'll treat me. This is how you will treat others. This is how you will live your daily life. This is how you'll deal with foreigners and aliens. This is how you'll deal when it comes to to accidental death or on-purpose death, and He begins to hand out His law. Because you have a people that has been enslaved for over 400 years and the only law they know is the law of Pharaoh. The law of the Egyptians. And so they now, as this new community, as this nation of Israel that is on its way to the promised land, they have to have a new way to live. Now I've asked you this before, but imagine what it must have been like to to start your own society. None of us will ever have that experience. None of us will never know what that is like yet they are experiencing it it started way back with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and now we see it happening again as God is forming this nation and he is bringing them to the promised land he is leading them to Canaan and along the way he is providing them a new way of life God is going to use creation to achieve redemption And it's this life that's given from the Lamb that is going to provide life for Israel. It's not simply the blood as the marker of protection. It's the blood of creation that is shed so that Israel's blood might be spared. God is using creation to achieve redemption. And so as Israel leaves, they're driven out. God instructs the Israelites, hey, go to the Egyptians. Tell them that you need stuff. Tell them that you need silver and you need all of these kinds of things. And the Egyptians are so ready for the Israelites to get out of Egypt that they load them up with stuff. Here, please take it. Take the silver. Take everything you need. Just please go away from here. Flee our presence. Please, please leave. And so they leave with the plundered goods in tow. Peter ends points out that the Israelites walk out through the front door with dignity. He says this is something that's been missing throughout the the narrative since Exodus began because God has liberated His people and He has revealed His glory, which is exactly what He said He was going to do. And then one little quick note before we kind of transition to to an application. You notice there in verse 38, it says that there's a, a mixed crowd went along with Him. So they went up with them and the livestock and in a great number, both flocks and, and herds. Terrence Fredham points out that when the people of God are liberated, when the people of God are liberated, not only their own kind can come along. The benefits of freedom have a fallout effect on those and whom they come in contact with whether they are people of faith or not you know it's that that idea it's that that thought that i i have said to you before this is such a great point and it's simply this that just as hurt people hurt people does that make sense you understand what i'm saying just as hurt people hurt people free people free people does that make sense think about what that's saying. How many times have you been hurt by someone? How many times was that person who hurt you hurting themselves? Okay, because that's what we do. As hurt people, we hurt people. But the reverse effect is there. Free people. As a matter of fact, and John's going to talk to us about what Jesus did and how he freed us in just a few minutes, but free people, free people. Because we have been freed by Jesus Christ. Because we have been freed by by what God has done for us. And it is our job to to point people, to point others to Jesus. And so that's what the Israelites do. They leave Egypt and some of those Egyptians are like, Hey, I'm going with you. Okay? I've seen what your God can do. I look back and I see all of Egypt's gods kind of lying there feebly in the dust. They have no response. They have no reply. But your God, I'm going with you guys. And so this mixed people, they leave Egypt because free people, free people. And Again, this, just, this all to me, this, this, you, you see this thread weaving itself throughout the story of the, of the entirety of the Bible because this, this points ahead to, to Acts chapter 10 where God opens up salvation for all of mankind. And so you have the departure. Read with me starting in verse 40. If we look at 40 and 42. The time that the Israelites had lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the companies of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. That was for the Lord a night of vigil to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That same night is a vigil to be kept for the Lord by all the Israelites throughout their generations. And that's what we see happening. That's what you see taking place with Passover as the people, they celebrate this meal. They have this visual, visual this, this reminder of what God has done. It is, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the blood that was sacrificed. Remember the unleavened bread. Remember that I delivered you, that I brought you out of captivity, that I brought you out of your bondage into a new land. So how is this a word from us? Very simply, I think as we we look at this teaching and we look at this text, I think it's very simply this, and it'll be on the screen behind me. I think God is saying, don't forget who I am. Remember that? Exodus chapter 3, I am, or Exodus 3, 4, 5, when Moses is being told to go stand before Pharaoh, who should I say it is that sent me? And God says, you tell them I am. Okay? I think the word to us as we read this story that is thousands of years old, I think it is to us, do not forget who I am. Remember what I have done, yet be mindful of what I am doing both now and into the future because God continues to work. Just as he delivered the Egyptians from bondage, he's going to deliver people through Jesus. And so that brings us to the point of the morning, and it's simply this right here. Yahweh is the great God above all gods who delivers his people from bondage to freedom. That is what God does. As you look into the New Testament, you see that the, the writers deliberately move from Lamb, lowercase, to lamb with a capital L. They move from type to, to any type, for this is the fullness of God's plan. The prison is now a kingdom of darkness, not, not slavery in Egypt. The captive is, is no longer Israel, but it's the entire world. redemption is not a geographical change but it's a spiritual change. And it's one that is open to all of us as God once again wants to redeem His people as He wants to call us out of the bondage that we find ourselves in. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you for, for loving us and, and blessing us the, the way that you do. Thank you for allowing us. Thank you for the allowing us the privilege to worship you. Thank you for allowing us to celebrate the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Thank you that you deliver your people. That you are the great God that is above the gods of this world. And that you do want to bring all people out of bondage into freedom. And you do that through the sacrificed lamb of Jesus. God, help us to be mindful as we move forward. Help us to remember this story. Help us to keep in mind that it is a call to us to remember. And what you have done and what you will continue to do in our lives. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Through his name we pray and all together we say, Amen.